Okay, so every blessing to you all, and welcome back to another open air video. As you know, I'm still working my way through Acts of the Apostles, and my goal initially was to record it in 12 months. Well, I think that's going to slip now. It could go into 18 months. In fact, I was thinking last night that J. Vernon McGee, the late American Bible teacher, spent five years, can you believe, going through the entire Bible. And here I am, just passing week number 42, 43 or thereabouts, and I'm not even up to chapter 18. In fact, last Sunday, I was able to finish Acts 17, and therefore, tomorrow, Lord willing, I will be commencing Acts chapter 18. So, if you want to join me, you're more than welcome to do so. 11 a.m. UK time, every Sunday. If you go onto our website, excatholicsforchrist.com, that's excatholicsforchrist.com, and click on the live Sunday sermon link. You can listen in live to our entire service. But I'm still working my way through this very uh, interesting book. And uh, some years ago, a Bible teacher made the statement that Matthew, Acts, and Hebrew, Hebrews, I should say, excuse me, are probably the hardest books in the New Testament to teach. And that's very true. Matthew, of course, was written by a Jew to the Jews, and it uh, concerns the Lord's ministry to the Jews under the law. Acts, of course, written by Dr. Luke, another saved Jew, not a Gentile. I know some uh, church scholars think that Luke was a Gentile who converted uh, to Judaism and then got saved. No, I think he was a Jew, and I think he was one of the 70. And he would write Acts the Apostles, all 28 chapters, and that, of course, is a transitional period. It uh, goes from law to grace, old covenant to new covenant. Hebrews, of course, is written to the Hebrews, and uh, that has some application to the first century church and also to the Jews during the Great Tribulation. But I've taught through Matthew, and I've taught through Hebrews, but actually Apostles is a very difficult book altogether. Very difficult, very different, and the reason why it's difficult is because it's covering a 30-year period, and most of what you read in Acts of the Apostles is not doctrinal also. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. My goal, as I say, was 12 months. It could go into 18 months. I was able to start it in June last year, and uh, here we are, April the 1st. Doesn't time fly by? And uh, not even up to Acts 18 yet. So keep me in prayer, if you will. But uh, what I've noticed through Acts of the Apostles over the last 42 weeks is not only is it a transitional uh, book, it also deals with what's called progressive revelation. And I was speaking to a brother on the streets last week who came over to me and he was asking about Acts chapter 2, verse 33. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. And he said to me, how do I respond to this piece of scripture concerning David sleeping? Because he was concerned that if he was to come across those that hold to soul sleep, they would go to Acts 2.34 and ask him to explain it. And I said to this brother, well, for David is not ascended into the heavens. That was true as far as Peter was concerned around 30 AD because Peter was 
offering what he knew about David's state up until that point of time. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, he got two Adonais there, incidentally, two Jehovah's, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. You've got a picture there, incidentally, of God the Father speaking to God the Son. But the whole context of Acts chapter 2 really starts, as far as I am concerned, in 27. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Concerning Jesus Christ, of course. So I said to this brother, well, first of all, Acts 2 is speaking about Christ being greater than King David. Like Hebrews speaks about Christ being greater than Moses. And therefore, when David died, he went into the ground. But it says how thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Concerning Christ, of course. He goes into the tomb, and after three days he's bodily resurrected. No corruption took place to his flesh. And yes, his soul went into hell. David, of course, would go into hell when he died. In fact, everybody that died pre-Christ went into the ground. Hell, excuse me, Sheol, Hades, and uh, there were two parts of hell, one for the righteous, one for the unrighteous. And you were told later that Christ would go into hell as well. Not to be tortured, not to be born again, that's a heresy, but to set captivity captive, to take the righteous back to glory. So David dies, he goes into the ground, and his flesh sees corruption. And as far as Peter was concerned, up until this point of time, he was still in the ground. But later on, the Lord would show Paul, in Colossians 2, I think it is, and Ephesians 4, and also Peter would also be showing this from 1 Peter chapter 3, how Christ went into the ground, as I say, to set captivity captive, which means he went into the ground to take the righteous back to glory with him. That's why you want to be careful with Acts of the Apostles, and that's why it's a difficult book to exegete. So when it says in 34, for David has not ascended into the heavens, well, he actually had ascended around this time, but Peter wasn't aware of that, which also undermines the false notion that Peter was infallible. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. God the Father, of course, elevating God the Son. So take these verses together, and we're to get his progressive revelation. And that's why you want to be very careful when you read through Acts of the Apostles not to teach it doctrinally. So with that in mind, jump over to Acts 13, because as you know, I've been doing several videos now over the past year, giving you an update as to what I've been reading and uh, discovering. And uh, for this morning, I want to look at Acts 13, 14 and 15. Look at verse 1 from Acts 13, please. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manin, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. You've got four groups of people, very much uh, leaders in Antioch, modern-day Syria, and I spent some time going through Acts 15 a few weeks ago trying to explain that you had two groups in the early church, one body of course. If you're born again, you are in the body of Christ, whether you are in a church system or not, whether you are part of a denomination or not, you are in the body of Christ. And one group were in Jerusalem, 
which was the Jewish church, and the other group were in Antioch, Syria. And I may explain that later when I get, when I get to Acts 15. But you've got prophets and teachers. No one-man pastor. No pope. And it goes and say in verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. The Holy Ghost spake. The Holy Ghost appeared back in uh, Matthew 28. And the Holy Ghost, I think, post the Lord's ascension, is referred to as the angel of the Lord. But I think pre the Lord's ascension, the angel of the Lord is probably Jesus Christ. And that's why if you are a Trinitarian, as I am, you have no problem uh, deciphering when deity appears in Scripture. But it says, unto, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. It's always good to fast. There's no time as to how uh, often you should fast or for how long you should fast, but fasting is good. The Holy Ghost said, he can speak. In fact, he would tell Philip from Acts chapter 8 to go and preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Christ chose his apostles, and here the Holy Spirit is taken on the role of commissioning this early group of Jewish men to do further work for the one true God. Separation, of course, also would be uh, concerning one's fellowship with the Lord, one's separation from the world system, but here these men have been chosen for service, never salvation. Verse 3, And when they had fasted and prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. They. The early, the early church worked as a group. The early church functioned as a group. The early church worshipped, and on many occasions died as a unit. There's no one man calling the shots, and I have to stress that because most churches today are run by one man and all revolves around him but they prayed as a unit they fasted as a unit and they laid their hands on them as a unit look at five and when they were at salamis they preached the word of god in the synagogues of the jews and they had also john to their minister and sda will come along and so there you are you see the early church would be going to synagogues and would be marking the Sabbath. Well, I'll come back to that thought in a moment, but you've got to understand one thing, that the early church were predominantly Jewish. And you were told in John 4 how salvation is of the Jews, which means that the Jews are going to produce the Messiah, and they did. And the Messiah would offer salvation to the ends of the earth, which he did. On top of that, if you wanted to be part of God's people back in the old covenant you would have had to have been a Hebrew but for today to be one of God's people uh, for today to be forgiven washed in the blood you must be born again so here they're going to Salamis this group and they're going to preach the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews because God wants all men to be saved if you're saved praise the Lord and if you're saved, wonderful, give him the glory. But it's not just about you. He wants all men everywhere to be saved. He's drawn all men unto himself. 
He's granted repentance to the Jew, Acts 5, and also to the Gentile, Acts chapter 11. But verse 5 is flagged along with verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And, it's, and the SGA come along and so there you are, you see. The early church kept the Sabbath. No, the early Jewish remnants of the church in the first century kept the Sabbath because the Sabbath was given to the Jews. But on top of that, the Jewish remnants in the early church would worship on a Saturday and a Sunday as well so they could reach the Jews. You've got a typical synagogue in the first century filled with unsaved Jews, very much under the Old Testament. And you've got saved Jewish apostles going into a typical synagogue on their travels and they would preach to the Jews on the Sabbath. You won't find Gentiles in the first century worshipping on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to Israel. The Sabbath, according to Nehemiah chapter 9, was given to the children of Israel. So if you are a Gentile, and if you are born again, and if you are worshipping on the Sabbath, Saturday, then technically you are under the Old Covenant. Yes, you have liberty in the Lord, that's clear from Romans 14, but to be uh, clear about it, you are technically under the Old Covenant. You need to move to the New Covenant. And the New Covenant would be concerning Sunday worship. The Lord came up out to the tomb the first day of the week. Sunday, not Saturday. But ask yourself this, for those of you which are interested in politics, why is it that so many politicians never get saved? Why are so many politicians dabbling in the occult? Well, take a look at verse 6. When they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name is Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulos, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. You've got an unclean spirit indwelling a false prophet, referred to as Bar-Jesus, and his power in the name of Jesus, and yet there are two Jesus in the scripture. There's two spirits in the scripture. There are two churches in the scripture. And when I get a chance, I'll look at 2 Corinthians 11, maybe video after this, to further expound that. But here they come across a false teacher, a sorcerer, one that was into the occult, doing uh, witchcraft, communicating with dead people, a false prophet. And it says how he was with the deputy of the country, a VIP, and it says he was a prudent man, and he called for Barnabas and Saul, desiring to hear the word of God. Now this man wanted to be saved, this deputy of the country, but he's got a very powerful individual who is somehow affiliated to him. Look at 8. But Elymas, a sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from their faith. You see, if you are a VIP, first of all, you have authority from heaven to do what you do, which allows you to have great uh, accountability, You've got a lot of power, a lot of privileges. Many people are going to be uh, affected by what you decide. But the chances are you may have aides around you. You may have advisors around you who 
are not necessarily helpful and those people, if they're not born again, are going to be ignorant. And it says, this man, Elymas, or Elymas, the sorcerer, withstood them. He's trying to block Barnabas and Saul from giving further light to this VIP, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. That's a dangerous thing. When somebody tries to share the gospel, it's very dangerous when someone comes against you. And I've seen this for years on the streets. I've had this when I've tried to speak to people. Even making videos such as this, you get distractions. You get all sorts of problems, and uh, you've got to push on. But it says in 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? His soul is now referred to as being Paul, is filled with the Holy Ghost. He's probably got an anointing. And he sets his eyes on Elymas, this false prophet, this man filled with unclean spirits. And he doesn't mince his words. And he says, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, you're no good from top to bottom. Thou child of the devil, how about that? Thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Paul is infuriated. And if you do any kind of street work, if you are an evangelist, if you want to reach souls for the Lord, you too know what this is like when somebody tries to get in the way. We had an event last year in Hastings. We were speaking to a group of Mormons, about eight of them, and it was going very well. And uh, out of nowhere, this guy walked over to our group, uh, about four of us, witnessing to eight Mormons, and it was going pretty well. And this guy barged in and uh, tried to stop what we were doing, tried to distract the Mormons from hearing the gospel. We've got some photographs of that uh, incident on our website. I thought, this is just typical. Here we are trying to witness to the Mormons. We've had about 25 minutes with them. And it's going really well. And this guy walks over, slightly intoxicated, butts in. And he tries to thwart the witness. And I saw this man about an hour beforehand. And he walked straight past our little group. Didn't take a tract, showed no interest in what we were doing. But the moment, we started to witness to these Mormon missionaries. He comes over and interferes. And here, Paul has come across a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. And there are many Jesuses, as I say, and I'll deal with that in a future message. And Paul goes and say in Verse 11, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Physical blindness, like what you find back in Genesis 19 when the Sodomites come to rape the angel of the Lord. So I'll just say this before I move on, that if you are an evangelist, if you do street work, if you have any kind of ministry for the Lord, you better expect a lot of problems, a lot of hostility. 
direct attacks and indirect attacks. And here, Paul, as an apostle, had the authority to strike this man with blindness. Now today, it's somewhat different for us, and in a future message I want to speak out the difference between the Gospels and the Epistles. Because you were never told in the Epistles to cast out spirits. You were never told in the Epistles to take events into your own hands like Paul has done here. But I haven't got time to further elaborate on that this morning. But I will say this, that this is one of the reasons why so few politicians get saved. And that's why so many politicians are into the occult, masonry. And some are into wicked and grave sins like paedophilia and adultery and fornication and so on and so forth. So you've got some verses there from the first half of Acts 13. And uh, if you want to get a more detailed exegesis from those verses from 13, 1, 2, and 3, and 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, uh, go to the website and you can download the MP3. I should say our material is royalty free. We make no money from it whatsoever. It is copyrighted to stop people from making merchandise from it, but it is royalty free, which means you can download it, copy it, and share it with your friends and family. But uh, 14, one last time concerning the Sabbath, because this does cause so much confusion. And quite honestly, most of the messianic movements are legalist. They get you back under the law, and they'll get you to doubt your salvation, and they won't call Jesus Jesus, they call him Yeshua, which I have no problem with in and of itself, but ask yourself this, if Jesus should be referred to as Yeshua, why didn't the Holy Ghost call him Yeshua in the New Testament? Why wasn't he referred to as Yeshua in any Greek manuscript? In fact, why isn't God referred to as Jehovah in the New Testament? God has many names. He's called uh, El Alion, he's called El Gabor, Elohim, Adonai, uh, Almighty God. Don't limit him to just one name. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. They're going to witness to the Jews about Jesus, no more than that. The Sabbath was for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. And therefore you cannot read these verses and get the view that Gentile believers were somehow worshipping on the Sabbath. In fact, I say this to you that if you were a saved Gentile in the first century, and you went into a typical Jewish synagogue on a Sabbath, they would probably kick you out. Because as far as they were concerned, you were an unclean animal. Acts 13, take a look at verse 38, please. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now if you get that down, if you can comprehend that, if you can believe that, if you can receive that, that will kill every works righteous system all over the world. And on top of that, you'll never doubt your salvation again. Men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. 
all your past, present, and future sins, and by him all that believe, no works, are justified, exonerated, declared to be not guilty, from all things, every possible sin imaginable, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So no works, no mass, no church membership, no baptism, no nothing. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved. And on top of that, you are kept saved. And I can't stress that enough, and I never get tired of preaching that message, because most groups, most Christians, I'm sad to say, think you can lose your salvation. And they mess around with uh, grace, and they end up falling from grace. And I mentioned that last time, my previous message, 40, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, he despises, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall no wise believe, the man declare it unto you. So God offers salvation, 40. But it says in verse 41, For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall no wise believe. Through foreknowledge, God knew they wouldn't receive it. The man declare it unto you. So you are saved by believing on the Lord, and you are damned by not believing. In fact, that is what Mark 16 is all about. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. You weren't damned by not being baptized. You were damned by not believing. So one more time, you are saved by believing. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust him as your saviour. You receive him. And the Bible says, uh, to as many as received him, to them gave you the power, the authority, the right to become the sons and daughters of God. Sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. Okay, I'm going to try and include everybody there so nobody can say I'm missing anybody out. If you receive him, you are justified by faith and you become a son or a daughter of God. But if you reject it, you stand condemned at the judgment. Look at 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, the Jews, of course. But seeing you put it from you, not interested, somewhat self-righteous, somewhat smug, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. We shall have this man to rule over us. We have only one King Caesar. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So free will is given to man, but free will if it's not used correctly, will damn your soul. It's as simple as that. But they have to start with Israel, because the Jews are beloved for their father's sakes. Uh, Romans chapter 11. That's why we have to be kind and gracious to the Jews. People say, well, the Jews are behind secret societies. Well, so are so many Gentiles. People say, well, the Jews are behind the Illuminati. Well, so are many Gentiles. You've got to love them. And I know it's difficult sometimes. I've tried to witness the Jews over the years, and they sort of look at you as if you're filth. They sort of look at you with contempt. But you've got to love them. You've got to persevere on, because if just one Jew gets saved, it's a great blessing indeed. But here you've got Jewish apostles saved, of course, preaching to their Jewish brethren in a uh, physical sense, not a spiritual sense. But like they did back in Matthew 27, they reject Christ. Like they did back in 1 Samuel 8, they reject God the Father. And like they 
would do in uh, Acts 7, they would reject the Holy Spirit. And here, the offer has to go out nevertheless, because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look at 47. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. There's no limited atonement there. Calvinism, as far as I'm concerned, is a cancer. And Calvinism, on the one hand, creates a very puffed up, arrogant individual. And Calvinism also stops any kind of evangelism. Most Calvinists won't street preach. Most Calvinists won't look you in the face and say, Christ died for your sins. And if you receive him, you will be saved. Because as far as they are concerned, he may not have died for your sins. And therefore they leave you very much in your sins on your way to hell. Whereas when I preach to people, I level with them. And I say, listen, you are a sinner. You were born in sin. And unless you repent, unless you receive Christ as your saviour, you're going to burn. And I will tell people that. I don't mince my words when I go into the streets. I try and level with people. And I think if more brothers did that, we'd have more men. But unfortunately, most men are like women today, effeminate. Most men are cowards. Most men allow their women to run their families and their churches. But the early church were run by men. The early church were run by men, and those men wrote the New Testament. That doesn't mean that women can't share the gospel. Of course they can. That doesn't mean that women can't uh, share their testimonies. Of course they can. The first person to the risen Christ was a woman. But men are the ones who are expected to street preach. Men are the ones who are expected to get close up and personal. And yet, unfortunately, most men, as I say, are cowards. Most men are effeminate. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the church is in such a poor state. But it says how the Lord commanded us, saying, I've set thee to be a light of the Gentiles. You've got saved Jews reaching out to unsaved Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation. And of course, Jesus, Yeshua, means Jehovah saves unto the ends of the earth. Unlimited atonement, you can't get around it. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. The Calvinists said, there you are, you see, you are, you are ordained to believe. But let's take our time with verse 30, excuse me, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, they were glad. They've received it. They've appropriated the atonement and glorified the word of the Lord. The Bible says how God looks in the hearts, whereas man looks in the outward appearance. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. But verse 48 doesn't tell you when this occurred, only that it did occur. And my view is quite simply this, that this group of people, this group of Gentiles, had to hear the gospel, as you and I did, had to believe it, like you and I did, and then they were justified. And then they were ordained to eternal life. But ask yourself this, where else, is we find, where else do we find this in the scripture? What you don't want to do is take one verse and build a doctrine on it. And I was trying to explain this to the brother last weekend that what you don't want to do is take Acts 2.34 and build a doctrine on that, which is what most people do, unfortunately. One of the first things I learnt uh, when it came to hermeneutics 
was that we have to take many verses and line them all up and get a doctrine based on a multitude of verses. For example, if there are ten verses, ten clear verses on a particular subject, we can build a doctrine on that. If there are nine clear verses on a particular subject, we can build a doctrine on it. Eight verses, seven verses, six verses, it's getting problematic. Five verses, you can't do it. If there are five clear verses on any given subject and five ambiguous verses, you cannot build a doctrine. It's a 50-50 mix. You can't do it. But one verse, absolutely impossible. So as far as I'm concerned, this piece of scripture is only found here in Acts 13.48. And as I said at the beginning of this message, Acts is a transitional book. That's why you don't want to teach us as doctrine. But I think if you simply take the Pauline epistles and also the Gospels, you can read those scriptures and lights of 48 and get a clear understanding that they heard it, which is Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They're glad, which means their hearts have received it, and they glorify the word of the Lord, which results in many of those people being ordained to life eternal. So there's no Calvinism there. There's no predestination there. There's no irresistible grace. And I say this, that if you hold to irresistible grace, why not ask yourself this, that if it were God's good pleasure to make a sinner alive, to regenerate a sinner before they could be saved, which is what Calvinism believes, why not do it to everybody? I mean, why not regenerate everybody in order to be saved? Because as far as I can see, most people that are alive on the earth today are going to die in their sins and go straight to hell. And yet the Bible makes it clear that Christ has reconciled the world unto himself. He's done what he has to do. And now you are expected to be reconciled to him. I don't want to spend too much time in Calvinism. So, I think it's enough from Acts 13. Uh, jump over to Acts 14, please, and look at verse 13. This be, in, this be uh, concerning uh, Paul and Barnabas. They've been preaching, they've been turning the world upside down, which is what a, an evangelist should do. If you are an evangelist, you should be turning your town upside down. You should be a thorn in the flesh of those that are at enmity with God. You should be able to uh, shame sinners in your town and city. 13. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people. They want to offer a human sacrifice up on behalf of Paul and Barnabas. This shows how uh, foolish people are before they are saved. I was very foolish before I was saved. I thought I knew how the world operated, and people used to say that I was uh, um, a man with an old head on young shoulders. And that's a term which has been used a few times uh, concerning myself when I was younger. You know, he, had a, he had an old head on young shoulders and my grandmother used to say to me, uh, I was so sharp, I would cut myself. And when it came to things of the world, I was pretty, uh, pretty savvy. When it came to things of the world, I was pretty uh, on the ball. But when it came to things of the Lord, I was completely in the dark. I was 
an absolute imbecile. I had no idea really who God was, what God was, what the Bible was, what its message was. I was completely ignorant. And yet I went to Catholic schools. All my friends were Catholic. Uh, we had priests that were friends with my parents. And yet I was completely ignorant. And I think most of my friends, I think most people that I grew up with, would say they were also ignorant of the true meaning of the Word of God and especially what the Gospel is. But here you've got a group of unsaved pagans and they are wanting to do sacrifice with the people. 14, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein no evolution there by the way who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways yes he did and yet those nations are still going to be judged by how they lived and how they operated you won't be able to beat the, the judgment you might think well the, uh, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians were only doing what they thought was right no they won't cut it when they arrive at the judgment, Revelation 20, they'll be judged for every word, thought, and deed. But it says in 15, We also, men of like passions, with you. Don't worship us. We're nothing special. And yet, look at the Catholic Church. Look at some of these charismatic churches. They call them in apostles, prophets. Have you heard this? Prophet A, Pastor B. And I've seen some of these churches online, and their congregations almost worship them. But you were told, were you not, in Matthew 23, call no man rabbi, because you have one rabbi which is Christ. Call no man father, if you have one father which is in heaven. And call not yourself masters, if you have one master which is Christ. So out goes the master mason term, lose it. Out goes holy father, or father, in reference to a typical priest, lose it. Out goes rabbi, concerning a saved Jewish man who wants to be called rabbi, lose it. Get rid of the titles. And yet, most churches would be appalled that I would say such a thing. But I studied for my doctorate. I went to this university, I went to that university. Our man of God, our prophet, our apostle, our priest is something special. No, he's not. He's filthy rags. He's nothing whatsoever. And we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities, picture of repentance, unto the living God. Turn from these vanities. Stop worshipping in ignorance. Quit it. That ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. That's what repentance is in a nutshell. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Yes, he did, and yet at the same time, such people are not going to avoid the judgment. So repentance is to change your mind is to have a complete about turn. Quit doing something. You go from unbelief to belief. You forsake false worship and you start worshipping God in spirit and in truth. So if you are a Catholic and you get saved, you quit that system. If you are a Muslim and you get saved, you quit that system. If you are an Anglican and you get saved, you quit that system. If you are charismatic or an SDA or Mormon or JW or Freemason, you quit that system and you start worshipping the one true God in spirit and in truth.
17, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. I do believe that God loves the world, but his love is conditional on you receiving a son. And yet, at the same time, he has a secondary love, which, let's say, is based primarily on creation. Enjoying a good meal, enjoying, uh, enjoying exercise, so on and so forth. And that all points back to the crater, does it not? I mean, just take a look at the backdrop behind me. That points to the crater of the world. You might think, well, that just evolved by its chance. Well, that is foolishness. And one day you'll die, one day you'll get sick. And for some of you people, you'll start to get scared. And you think to yourself, I'm 75, I'm 80, or I'm 45, I'm 50, or I'm 35, or I'm 40, and I'm sick, and I'm scared. And some of you people will say, get the priest in, get the pastor in, get him in, get her in, help me. And for some of you people, it'll be too little, too late. When you're sick and on your deathbed, you'll need someone greater than yourself to help you. And the Bible says, if you search him with all of your heart, you will find him. And yes, it's possible for somebody on the deathbed to be saved, but I think from memory, only one person in the entire Bible got saved on the deathbed, the thief on the cross. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Most people, when they go to hospital, are on so much medication, they have no idea what is even going on. They are bombed out of their brains, as the world say. 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, not pastors, not priests, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord, on whom they believed. So you've got elders being selected from within, a typical meeting like Acts chapter 6, and then they were ordained to become elders. It's very similar to 1348, concerning those that believed and then were ordained to eternal life. And here you got a group of elders being ordained in every church. For the first century church, if you were a Gentile, you probably met in somebody's home, and if you were a Jew, that got saved in the first century, you would have met in a synagogue. The early church did meet in four walls, they met in buildings. I know some people think that the early church would meet in places such as this, but it's not, that's not the case. The early church would meet in buildings, like the upper room, Acts chapter 1, or synagogues, James chapter 2, or houses, uh, Philemon, or Philemon, uh, verse 3. So don't get a phobia when it comes to four walls, but what you won't find in the New Testament is the one-man pastor calling the shots. It just doesn't exist. Jump over to Acts 15, verse 1, please. And certain men, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the man of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you get baptized, you cannot be saved. Unless you receive your first communion, you cannot be saved. Unless you join a local church, you cannot be saved. Wicked works. And sooner or later, if you are trying to win souls to the Lord, you will come across such people. Look at verse 4, please. 
And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Paul has gone up to Jerusalem, and he wants to get this heresy put to bed once and for all. He wants to thrash out what's going on. See, the early church were predominantly Jews, and to be fair to them, they had a great legacy, going back thousands of years, of the prophets, the patriarchs, they had kings, they had kingdoms. But due to sin, due to apostasy, bit by bit, they lost their credibility, they lost their influence in the world, and at the time of writing this, around probably, let's see now, 35, 40 AD, the Jews under Roman occupation, they have fallen from grace, literally. It says in verse 5, But arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. You've got a group of Pharisees which have believed, so they're saved. But they are teaching a false gospel. You say, how can that be possible? How can somebody be saved and preach a false gospel? Because they're not following the Spirit. They are following the flesh. And that's why it's possible to be a saved heretic. And yet, such people, if they don't repent, such people, if they continue to preach a false gospel after being corrected by the brethren, are the potential contenders to receive the whippings at the judgment seats of Christ. Luke chapter 12, I think it is. Because although they are saved, and they are kept saved, what they are preaching is so serious that it can mess up a person, it can damn a soul to hell. So it is possible to be saved and yet preach a false gospel. That's why you are told to rebuke such people sharply, warn others, and then separate. And yet back in the Old Testament, if you were preaching a false gospel, you were put to death, incidentally. But of course we don't do that today. We shun false teachers, we preach against them, and then we separate from them. And this group was saying how it was needful to circumcise them. Circumcise males, of course, that were in the early church, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. If you add works to the mix, if you try and introduce works to grace, then you are preaching a false gospel. And Paul told you in Galatians 1 that you could be accursed. But I don't think it's possible for a saved person to fall into heresy, to become a heretic, and then go to hell. I don't believe that. But I think you could end up being whipped the judgment seat, and you could end up losing everything, and not going into the millennial reign, to rule and reign. Isn't it great your salvation's fixed on Christ? Because we've all messed up. We've all sinned. I remember years ago, speaking to a brother, and I said to this brother, have you sinned willfully since you got saved? And he said, well, I haven't really sinned willfully. But have you really? Be honest with yourself. Have you sinned willfully since you got saved? And he looked so uncomfortable. He said, well, I've stumbled through weakness and I've done sins of the flesh. But did you sin willfully since you got saved? I had to really make the point clear to this brother to get it through to him that you have to believe in eternal security. And eventually, reluctantly, he said, yes, that he has sinned willfully since he got saved. Well, I said, well, so have I. And therefore according to the charismatics, according to most people, I've lost my salvation. And yet the same people turn around and say, but you can get it back. And those same people never once think they can lose their salvation 
and that you can lose your salvation. It's foolish, of course. And yes, you can. Sin willfully. I don't care who you are. Some of you people have a pride problem. Some of you people have a lust problem. Some of you women like to dress up when you go out. You like people to admire you. That's the old nature. Some of you people, some of you people got a temper problem. Some of you people are very strict with the kids. Some of you people are very cruel to your wives. That's sin. Never mind the big stuff like murder, pornography, adultery, manslaughter, sodomy. How about the other sins that you never hear about? How about excessive wealth? Some of you people spend more money on your animals than you do on God's people. Some of you people got two or three houses, four or five cars. Some of you people live very comfortable lives, and yet your brethren around the world are struggling. Some are even starving. Some of you people spend more money on your horse than a family in India who are saved. And I put it to you, when the judgment comes around, some of you people will hope that the floor will swallow you up. You'll be praying that the earth will open up and swallow you in. You'll be so mortified. You'll be so ashamed of yourself. You're saved, of course, by the blood. But when those eyes pierce you, when Christ looks at you carefully and says, why did you live after the flesh? Why did you spend so much money on yourself every year? Why not give that money to missions? Why not sponsor people who are overseas? There are saved people in India and Pakistan who are almost starving. There are saved people in uh, Gaza. Saved people who are struggling. And they look, over the, they look over, the, over the waters to wealthy people in Britain, Canada, America, who are living the good life. And those wealthy people in Britain, America and Canada couldn't care less about those poor saved brethren <coughs> in third world countries. I don't really know what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be like. I've heard people say, well, I'm not uh, fearful, I'm looking forward to it really. Paul told you it was a terror of the Lord. Terror of the Lord. Look at verse 7 please. When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Yes, that's true, but Peter was not the first Jewish apostle to witness to the Gentiles. It was actually Philip, from memory. Philip concerning the Ethiopian eunuch. And yet most Catholics will admit that. Eight, and God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. I put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Sola fide. Good old Peter, he comes through. Peter had many problems, and he pictures a man with two natures, and yes, you have two natures if you are saved, and you're here, he's on the money. As they say, purifying their hearts by faith. The just shall live by faith. You want to rejoice in something, rejoice in that. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in what Christ has done for you, not what you do for him. 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. You're saved by believing. And you're kept saved by what Christ did for you, not what you do for him. This piece of scripture has been referred to as a church council. I don't use that term, council. Paul would refer to this as a church conference. And he got different people standing up, 
having their say. And for the most, you've got saved people, but they are trying to grapple with this whole faith and work system, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Should we keep the Sabbath or not? Should we keep the feast days or not? Should we abstain from certain foods or not? It was a big problem for them. And again, it goes back to progressive revelation. They're trying to work out how this is all going to function, how it's all going to be uh, laid out, who's going to get what, what the Gentiles are expected to do, what the Jews are expected to do. And I'm not going to be overly hard on this group of people because for them it was a big problem. The New Testament wasn't yet written in its entirety. The Holy Spirit was taking his time revealing different truths to different groups of people. Peter stands up, Acts chapter 2, and he says, Repent and baptize in the name of Jesus Christ for mission of sins. Now, we don't preach that today. We preach you should be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. But the early church, the early Jewish church, the remnant of saved Jews, when preaching to unsaved Jews, would tell them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Meaning by the authority of Christ, they should be baptized. You see, by the name of Christ, with the authority of Christ, it's anonymous. We don't preach that today. On top of that, Acts chapter 2 has, has no mention of the blood atonements. It's progressive revelation. In fact, in some ways, what Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2 is what John is preaching in Matthew chapter 3. So don't be so quick to uh, slam this group of people <coughs> from verse uh, 1 and 5, and yet they were in the wrong. They were preaching another gospel. And Paul is scathing of these, of these men, I should say also. Paul is scathing of them over in the book of Galatians. But we believe, one more time from 11, that through the grace, God's righteousness, at Christ's expense, of the Lord Jesus Christ, substituting atonement, we shall be saved, past, present, and future sins, even as they. The Jews are going to be saved by believing, and the Gentiles are going to be saved by believing. And Catholics say, well, <coughs> this church meeting, uh, is really dominated by Peter. And I've heard Catholics argue that Peter opened it and pretty much dominated it. That's incorrect. Paul starts off in verse 4, then Peter takes over in verse 7, and then James, the Lord's half-brother, steps in in verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first had visited the Gentiles, to take out of them a people for his name. He wants people to be saved. He's going to take people out of society. That's what the church is. The church means ecclesia in Greek. Ecclesia means a called out people. We are a peculiar people. We are a royal priesthood. We are different from the world. We should be shame in the world. We are the light of the world. We should be reflecting our Saviour's light. And that's why church and state doesn't mix. That's why you cannot have a so-called Christian country. There's no such thing. If you're born again, you've been called out of the world system. You are a completely different uh, entity to those around you. But the truth of the matter is most Christians want to blend in with the world. Most Christians want to do their own thing. Most Christians don't want to cause a big stir or preach against sin. And I understand it. it's not easy. You know, it's very unpopular to be a saved person today and to preach the gospel. You know, if you're working with unsaved people, it's very difficult to pull them up. It's blasphemy. I remember speaking to a guy that I worked with some years ago, and uh, he came into my place of employment, 
and he had a filthy mouth on him, really filthy. <coughs> and he sat right opposite me, and he came in for about maybe two or three weeks. I used to dread him coming in. He knew where I was coming from. I told him I was a saved man, but he kept probing me. He kept uh, trying to wind me up. He kept trying to get me to uh, speak about what I believed and why I believed it. And I said, look, I'm not here to discuss the Bible with you. I'm here to do a job. I don't think Christians should witness on work time. That's been my policy for a long time. And he said, yeah, but tell me, what do you believe, James? What do you really believe? And he'd blaspheme, he'd be filthy mouth, you know, he had a filthy mouth, he'd be coming out with all sorts of strange things. I'd pull him up, and I'd say, look, quit it. You know, oh, I'm so sorry, and then five minutes later, JC, you know, really filthy mouth. And I thought, if I'm not careful, I'm going to get into an altercation with him. Now, I'm not a violent man, never have been. But if you push me hard enough, I guess the old nature will kick in. And I thought to myself, I can't lose my temper with him. I don't get into an altercation with him, I lose my testimony, and maybe lose my job. It was a really difficult situation, and he'd blaspheme all the time. And he wasn't the only person I had to pull up. About three other people in the office that would be blaspheming the Lord. I got sick of it. And most Christians keep their head down. They don't want to get into this altercation. They don't want to uh, rock the boat. And I'll tell you something, the world have no concern about rocking the boat. They will say what they want to do, they'll do what they want to do. They couldn't care less what you think. So, I do think if you can say something, go for it. And if you can't understand it, I'm not going to judge you either way. I've been in a situation where I know exactly what it's like. Sometimes it's good to be a silent witness. Sometimes it's good just to be there and uh, not get involved. All the uh, office politics, all the banter, all the filth. But here, Simeon, concerning Simon, there's a nickname for him incidentally, like John F. Kennedy, Jack Kennedy. Simeon has declared how God at the first to visit the Gentiles, to take out of them a people for his name. His name, Jehovah, Elohim, El Alion, El Gabor. As I said, God has many names. Don't limit him to just Jehovah or Yeshua. So you've got three people standing up during this church conference, not council, and they all agree that you're saved by faith and you're kept saved by faith. Look at 19, please. Wherefore my sentence is, James still speaking, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. There's repentance again. And that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. You've got four uh, decrees mentioned here which the uh, saved Gentiles would have to keep in order to stop their Jewish brethren from stumbling. Romans 14. Yes, you have liberty in the Lord, praise the Lord for it, but your liberty is conditional on how others are going to respond to it. Some Christians go to the, can go to the theatre, others can't. Some Christians can watch television, others can't. Some Christians can listen to music, others can't. You need to weigh up your liberty in light of how other people are going to respond to what you are doing. But here, James, a saved Jew, the Lord's half-brother, makes it so very clear that he won't trouble the Gentiles anymore. They've turned to God, which is what faith is, and no works involved. But he wants them to abstain from pollutions of idols, fornication, things strangled, and from blood. Not concerning their salvation, of course, but one, but one last time, concerning the Jewish remnant. That they wouldn't stumble, that they wouldn't uh, end up backsliding or being offended. In fact, you were told by Christ that if you cause one of those little ones that believe me to stumble, 
It'll better for you that a millstone were tied around your neck and you're cast into the depth of the sea. He says, if you cause one of my little ones that believe me to stumble, it'll better for you that you kill yourself. That's powerful stuff. Which goes back to Luke 12. Which goes back to false teachers teaching another gospel. And they are going to be severely reprimanded at the judgment seat of Christ. Of course, some of those people may not even be saved. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying all false teachers are saved. No way. In fact, I would say most false teachers are not saved. Most are not saved. And they're going to burn. Take a look at verse 36, please. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with him John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia, and were not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. You've got two saved people, filled with the Holy Ghost, and yet there is a division. Let me say this to you, that if you are born again, you are in the body of Christ. I've said that already, I know, but I'll say it again. Therefore, we are one in Christ. We're one through the resurrection, John 17. We're not going to agree on everything. There'll be points of doctrine that we cannot agree on. But if we're washed by the blood, we are brethren. And therefore, as I see it, because there are so many groups around the world, Bible-believing groups, that is a strength, not a weakness. It shows that God has allowed us to worship him in spirit. It shows me that he has allowed us to worship him in different ways. Some people worship him on a Monday, some on a Tuesday, some on a Wednesday, some on a Thursday, some on a Friday, some on a Saturday. Sabbath. Yes, you have liberty to do so, but technically you're under the Old Covenant. Some worship him on a Sunday. So don't look around all these groups and somewhat you know, become somewhat dismayed. No, that can be a strength, not a weakness. And here you've got Paul and Barnabas, two saved apostles, two saved men of God, and yet they cannot agree about John Mark, which, as far as I'm concerned, goes to groups within groups, denominations, so on and so forth. And yet if those people, if there are people in those churches, if there are people in those groups that are born again, then they are saved. They're my brethren, they're your brethren. And that's why I think sometimes you need to be a bit more gracious to other people. Uh, we won't agree on everything. There'll be times when we can't agree. Some of you might be mid-trib, I'm pre-trib. I won't condemn you for it. Some of you might be post-trib, I'm pre-trib. I won't condemn you for it. But if you start to attack the pre-trib rapture, if you start to uh, pull it down, if you start to ridicule it, then maybe I'll respond to it. But we're still brethren. We're still saved by the blood. I'm pre-millennial. You might be amillennial or post-millennial. Again, it's not a salvation issue. But if you attack the pre-millennial position, I might respond to it. But we're still brethren. I'm a King James. You might not be a King James believer. I wasn't saved by reading the King James. I wasn't even aware of the Bible issue until maybe two, three years after I got saved. I won't condemn you for it. I don't think you're going to grow particularly well if you don't use the King James, but you weren't saved, or most people weren't saved by trusting in the King James Bible. You were saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to grow as a Christian, to be a great believer, to be successful, I believe you need the Word of God, which is the King James. 
but I won't condemn you for it. You know, we're still brethren, but if you attack the King James, I might respond to you. Uh, some you hold to conditional security. Um, once saved, always saved. Uh, I think you're foolish to hold to that view, and there's many problems for holding to that view, but I won't condemn you for it, but if you attack eternal security, I might respond to you. You see? Two people that are saved by the blood aren't going to agree on every single point. And some of the differences are going to be quite big. They're going to be quite, uh, you know, difficult to avoid. And uh, what we want to do is uh, overlook it. We don't want to fudge it. You know, that's why separation sometimes is called for. But if you're saved, you're saved. You're saved by the precious blood of the Lamb. So I think you've got a great snapshot of what I was able to uh, cover over the last uh, 42 uh, weeks. And it's still somewhat cold for April, so excuse me if my voice is slightly drying up, but uh, you know me, if I can do an open-air video, I will. And uh, please go onto our website, excatholicsforchrist.com, and uh, download some of the uh, MP3s and uh, MP4s, which would be uh, the videos, of course, and uh, share with your friends and family. But I guess what you got this morning, if I was to give a very brief uh, recap from 13 <coughs> going into 15, would be that the early church operated as a group. No one man. They prayed and fasted. The Holy Ghost spoke. He personally chose uh, Paul and co. to do what they were going to do. You know, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? Christ would uh, choose Paul in Acts 9 to be his messenger. And the Holy Ghost would continue to give Paul uh, more opportunities to do greater things for him. These men weren't working off their own backs. They were part of the uh, Syria church, whereas Peter and co are part of the Jerusalem church. In fact, Peter was the Jewish apostle sent to the Jews. And it's interesting because Catholics will cite Peter as one of their own, and yet he was the apostle to the Jews. And yet most Catholics are Gentiles. So really, they are following the wrong apostle. They should be following Paul, not Peter. But uh, you've got uh, Paul going out with Barnabas, and they were very close up until that incident in chapter 15, which I just read to you. And they come across this false prophet who is trying to muddy the waters. He's trying to stop them from preaching to Sergius Paulos, seven. And Paul spots it straight away, and he takes the bull by the horn, as they say, bull by the horns, and he strikes that man with blindness. That man didn't get saved, and yet he went off in pitch black, total darkness, and probably was very fearful as to what was going to happen to him, which of course is a picture of everlasting hell. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, you're in outer darkness, and yet at the same time you're in a burning fire. Terrifying. You've got the apostles, the saved apostles, saved Jewish apostles, going to synagogues on their travels where they are preaching to their Jewish counterparts, their brethren, to get them saved. No more than that. You can't read into text what's not there. You've got uh, faith alone upheld in 13, 38, 39, and yet you've got 40 and 41 warning you that if you don't receive it, you're going to be condemned, you're going to perish, die in your sins, go to hell. 46, 47, 48, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the word of God to the Jews. They haven't given up yet. Neither should you, I should say. 
if you are doing street work it can get quite difficult at times you can get disillusioned keep on going keep on going and uh, spend as much time you can, as you can in the Word of God spend as much time as you can in prayer but keep on going never quit never give up but the Jews say no I'm not interested in your crucified Messiah we're quite self-righteous we have Mary we have the Mass we have the Pope we have 2,000 years of tradition you can keep your Jesus that's what they say and I went to Catholics over the years very self-righteous people Catholics very ignorant deceived of course and of course if you are deceived you don't know you're deceived and the Jews are the same you can keep your Jesus I've heard Muslims say the same thing you can keep your Jesus but i tell you something if you didn't have Jesus and Moses in the Quran the entire religion would fall flat on its face because the Muslims need Jesus and Moses to give them credibility if they were just to preach Muhammad who would care about Muhammad nobody at all but they need Moses and Jesus to buff it to build up to give them more credibility there's power in the name of Jesus and the Jews say no thank you <coughs> we're okay as we are we're going to trust in the law we're going to trust in Moses and that causes them to be damned the Gentiles hear the word of God uh, 48 they're glad they are destined to be ordained to receive eternal life but you can't get the Calvinist interpretation from that piece of scripture You've got elders being appointed, 1423, from within, not without. There's no one-man pastor. And I assume you'll notice that when Paul wrote his epistles, he wrote to the church, not to the pastor. I assume you all knew that. He doesn't say Pastor A or Pastor B, Apostle A, Apostle B. He writes to the church. But there are some saved Pharisees, 15, who went down to Syria and gave them a Bible study. They lectured them. You've got to do this, you've got to do that, in order to be saved. And it says how Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. They had a great uh, dispute with them. And when they couldn't uh, deal with this issue in Syria, they went up to Jerusalem. And the church in Syria sent them up to Jerusalem, which is somewhat interesting. And they arrive, and Paul gets up in verse 4, and he declares what God has been doing among the Gentiles, which must have been a great blessing for the Jews to hear it. And he got saved Pharisees, which believed, but they were teaching a faith and works package. Devastating. Heretical. And even blasphemous, if you repent of it. But Peter, to his credit, comes through, verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they remarkable the early church always believed faith alone but over the centuries you had the church and state coming together like the church of Constantine and they would teach a faith and works package which hasn't changed in fact the church of England also are very much the daughters of the whore and they too preach a faith and works package if you don't believe me just ask them it's very rare to meet somebody who says, I'm saved by the blood of Christ, and that's it. Very rare. And it's even rarer to say that all I'm interested in is this book. Most people that I speak to have some kind of tradition that they are part of, some kind of system. It's very rare to meet somebody like myself, watching the blood, Bible alone. That's it. I'm not interested in anything else or anyone else. Very rare. But they taught faith alone, and yet somewhere down the line, probably the third or fourth century, it got lost. And uh, 
reformers came along and they tried to their you know they, they tried to they tried as well as they could to their credit they did try to rediscover the gospel and they did teach sola fide and yet at the same time they would hold to infant baptism they retained the vestments they returned other doctrines which were not scriptural and at times they got confused by how a man was saved and kept saved but uh, if you heard in my previous videos about the reformers they didn't want to uh, obliterate the Catholic Church they wanted to reform it you can't reform you can't reform a whore you know if a whore is a whore she's a whore if she gets saved okay fine then she quits being a whore but you can't reform a whore okay you can't reform an alcoholic you can't reform. You can't reform a chain smoker. You need to be born again, because most alcoholics fall off the wagon. Most chain smokers start smoking again, and most whores will go back to being a whore. And that's pretty crude, but it's very relevant, and it's very true as well. And it says in twenty-eight, if it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now James is saying, never mind what we've just said, it's good to the Holy Ghost. He's spoken to Paul, 13. He spoke to Philip, chapter 8. And now James is saying that the Holy Ghost is happy with what is occurring. He's present at this church conference in Jerusalem. And they write these decrees, which is picked up in 16. Uh, chapter 16 and it says how the Gentiles rejoiced no more works no more worrying about this or that no more questioning our salvation it's all about Christ so progressive revelation absolutely and that's why you shouldn't teach Acts as a doctrinal book uh, on top of that you can't read Acts Apostles and try it and implement it today there are no Apostles today <coughs> there are no prophets today an Apostle was an eyewitness of the Lord an apostle is somebody who saw the risen Christ. Okay, so you cannot be an apostle today. The church was built, past tense, on the apostles and on the prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The foundation has been built. It's set in stone, literally. Okay? You can't change it. You can build on it, but you can't change it. You can't uh, subtract from it. It's, you know, it is what it is. You can't... Uh, interfere with it you just have to receive it as it is if that makes sense but no 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 apostles no prophets today if you're a brother if you're saved you are just that a brother or maybe an elder uh, but I think you've got the main gist of what I wanted to uh, share with you all this morning and I'll just jump out of camera shot because you might be very keen to have a look and see what is behind me and this is pretty uh, Remarkable, I think. And I don't think I've been up here for quite some time. In fact, I made a video maybe 18 months ago called Can a Christian be a clairvoyant? And I shot it near here. And then I made a video not far from here called uh, Rebuking the Filthy Rags Brigade, which you may recall from maybe four or five years ago, I think. But so I haven't been here for some time. And although it's very pretty to come to locations such as this, you are <coughs> very much, uh, I won't say exposed, but you have the elements all around you. 
the wind and it's still very cold so I give the, I give the Lord uh, much praise and glory that I was able to spend over an hour up here this morning looking at Acts of the Apostles. Okay, so there you are, a very beautiful backdrop and I uh, hope you are blessed and uh, encouraged after watching this video and I wish you every possible blessing and happiness and joy in our great God and uh, I'll speak to you all very soon. God bless you and manaka.